The following is a message from Pastor Kelly Hewitt and Live It, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.liveitmke.org. Tonight, we continue our series on scandal, an event which offends our expectations. Something that's going on that as we read through it, we're offended that it took place. Right now, over the last couple of weeks, it's kind of interesting how what we're talking about as we walk through the passion of Jesus and we see the various scandals that are unfolding before us, things that go against what we would expect. In our media, scandals are playing out as grand juries come back, as people are upset and rioting over events of what they feel is unjust and going against what they would expect and, oh, we will only share facts that we want to share and depending on which side you're on, we'll only take those. I've had a lot of political friends lately who their Facebook pages are on the verge of being blocked because I haven't seen anything but a right or a left wing thing that's all about how the other person is such a horrible person. We, have, we live in a polarizing society. And the events that took place with Jesus and his trial are just as polarizing, except for there was nobody at the time who would stand up for him, and that's perhaps the greatest scandal. When you want to take a look at a trial today, what has to happen if you are to be arrested? There has to be a crime, and if they're going to arrest you, they have to do what? They have to... They have to investigate, and they have to have Miranda rights. Before you get to Miranda, how do they know it's you? They have to have enough evidence against you. They have to know for some reason that it's you who did this crime. It was announced, I don't know whether it was late last night or early this morning, that they found the, the 20-year-old who's suspected of shooting two officers in Ferguson. Why could they arrest him? Because they had enough evidence that pointed that he was the main suspect, and so they could arrest him to interrogate him. You take a look at Jesus' own trial. If you remember back, they arrested him with no charges. They got the public officials to bring him in, but they didn't have a charge to bring against him when they brought him in. And so that's where we're at with this situation. He's now been arrested falsely. He is now being brought to trial. And just so you're aware, in Jewish tradition and custom, You cannot have trials, you cannot make decisions in the dead of night in an undisclosed location without evidence, without due process, and without anything that that goes right along with our trials. And yet when you take a look at what happened with Jesus, when did Jesus, when was Jesus arrested? In the middle of the night, right? Somewhere in the middle of the night in in a secluded location and they had no reason for the arrest. So what time does the we'll call it the unofficial religious trial take place, somewhere between the hours of 2 and 6 a.m. Because we have the understanding that right around 6 or 7 a.m. is when what we're about to read takes place. In your bulletins, I have for you the the Luke account. And we're going to read through the Luke account. And we're going to walk through today a jury courtroom trial that goes on with Jesus. And we're going to unfold this before you. So we're going to start off with, at daybreak. So daybreak... You also have to put into perspective, this is right around April. This is, there would have been a, a, 
a full moon because it'd be the month of Nisan, which is where the Passover would take place. So you're talking daybreak. So you're talking, what time does the sun come up today? I wasn't up. 6.45, 7, somewhere in there. So you're talking daybreak. That's when he says this is taking place. At daybreak, the council of elders of the people, both chief priests, chief priests and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. So he starts off and he lays out, who are our main characters here in this courtroom? Jesus. This is going to come back. I'm giving you a pre-warm-up. You have some diagrams over on the other page. Just use those diagrams. Who's going to be called the prosecution? We're going to come to those in a little while. I'm just giving you a little heads up. Who's the prosecution? Who's bringing the charges? The chief priests and the religious leaders. So these are the people of Israel. And Jesus' answer to them, they ask him, are you the Christ? This entire time, there are those who will say, Jesus never once confesses to be God, never once confesses to be the Christ. Anybody who you have that are friends who, who bring that comment to you, all you got to do is open up to Luke. He says very clearly, I am, but you're not going to believe it, even if I tell you. You have friends who struggle with who God is. I sat in a collectivo this week with a guy who calls himself a quasi-Christian pragmatist, which I was like, I, I, you're using a lot of really interesting words. And he's like, I have a general Christian belief, but I'm not quite sure Christianity is the right one, or if any of the other. So he's a quasi-Christian pragmatist who is also agnostic, because he's not sure if there is a higher power, but if there is one, he's not sure which one's the right one. And he needs to study them all, because he's not sure which one will tell him the right thing. And I sat there, and I I was prepping for this as as I was talking with him. I'm like, hey, buddy, this guy says he's God. All the other ones call themselves prophets of the deity. Every other one says, I'm going to point you to the right one. Christianity has the only one that says... I am God. I am the Son of God, and everything written is written by him, about him. He looked at me and he said, I think we need to study some more. So I get to go have more coffee. But as you take a look at that, that's what this is. You want to take somebody who's struggling. That's where you start. You say, hey, guess what? If somebody who says they don't know, he doesn't ever claim it, right here, what does he say? If I tell you, you're not going to believe. So what do they say? They asked him, are you the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying, I am. And this is the one of the few times that Luke uses this I am statement. And as we talked about last week, this ties Jesus all the way back to Moses. Where when Moses was asked, who am I to t-, when Moses asks, who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh? Who am I supposed to tell the children of Israel sent me to, to lead all these people out of Egypt? His answer is, tell them I am sent you. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am, has sent you. That's what you are to tell them. Jesus here claims very clearly, I am. Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. So the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Now, if you go to John's account of this, John will fill in for you as they arrive at Pilate. They tell Pilate, Pilate, there's no need for you to investigate this matter. This man is guilty. We just need you to rubber stamp his crucifixion for us. 
We need you to just rubber stamp his death. We've already had the trial. Pilate, you don't need to bother yourself at 7 a.m. or 6.45 a.m. with this problem. We've already taken care of that for you. We, we love you so much, Pilate, which is a lie, that, that we're, 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 we're going to take care of this already. But Pilate says, I can't kill anybody without actually investigating. So the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation, opposing pa- payment of taxes to Caesar, and claims to be Christ a king. So, in a secular term, you have to realize for secular people in Jerusalem, the Passover is kind of like St. Patty's Day. For those who aren't actually Catholic but still want to participate in the celebration of, and those who aren't Irish Catholics, who are celebrating St. Patrick as the Irish Catholic and all the fun that goes with it about being Irish, you have to realize this is a time where it was great celebrations were going on in Jerusalem. And Pilate would have been enjoying. So for some of you who had rough mornings this morning after a great night last night, or had a rough Saturday morning because you were out late Friday night, imagine your Pilate, who has now been woken up by these cantankerous Jews who have done nothing but annoy you for your entire existence, and now they are on your doorstep at 7 in the morning wanting to kill someone. Oh, and by the way, their main charge against them is that they're causing a mutiny, and they bring a horde of people with them, which could be considered a mutinous, riotous crowd, and they bring this massive, riotous crowd with them to your door at 7 a.m. and start screaming outside your house. You're going to be really, really on guard and really want to love and, and listen to them, right? So that's Pilate's situation right now. They bring up these charges, hoping that he's a little too groggy from a night of, of fun, hoping that he's just going to overlook it, and here's where they go. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? If you say so, is really more closer to what the, the Greek says, but he says, it, yes, as you say. You say, you say, is really what it says. So if you say so, Jesus replied. Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted he stirs up people all over Judea by his teachings. Ironic, right? Who's stirring up a crowd in Jerusalem and has Pilate on the verge of dispersing the troops to break everybody up? Who's in the middle of starting the riot right now? Who's starting the riot? The religious leaders, the chief priests and leaders of the people. They're claiming this guy is starting riots. Oh, by the way, we have a riotous crowd sitting right outside your door. If you don't listen to us, we're all going to come in and do this anyways. Hearing, he stated in Galilee, he has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracles. Now, Herod, if you, this is the, the grandson or son of Herod the Great, depending on who you read through. And let's just put it this way. The guy claims to be a Jewish guy, but he claims to be a Jewish guy as long as it helps his pocketbook and helps him have some authority. He really has no real authority. He's just a rich brat who's living off of his family's lifestyle and his family name. Um, and so that's kind of who he is. And so when he says, this is the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded, by the way, all because he liked a girl, and the girl said, hey, give me John the ha- Baptist's head. So in order to sleep with a girl, he beheaded John the Baptist. 
he has really high morals and values, this Herod does. And so he brings him to Herod, and Herod's question is, I want to see this boy dance. I want to see the dancing monkey. I've heard of these miracles that he's done. I want, I want him to come and do some miracles for me. He has no idea that he's the Messiah. He really doesn't care. If Jesus does some miracles for him, he's going to be happy. He just wants a good show. He's probably not gone to bed from partying the entire night before. And his whole perspective has nothing to do with an actual trial, has nothing to do whether he cares about Jesus. His entire thing is, I just want to see this guy do some tricks. On hearing this, so he, pl- he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in, elegant, in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends before they had been enemies. So if you're on trial, how would you feel your trial's going at this point if you're Jesus? This cantankerous crowd woke up the guy who's annoyed at them all the time and accuses you of a couple of different things. He asks you if you're guilty. He says, oh, you're not guilty, but I'm not having a backbone or I'm not strong enough of a male to do my job and release you. So I'm going to kick the problem over to um, playboy Herod, who's just living on his daddy's money, and, oh, we'll let him play some games with you. And by the time, oh, he doesn't find anything wrong, so then he kicks you back to Pilate. How would you feel your trial's going at this point? How do you think it's going? We're in for a bad way, right? So now we're going to get to that diagram. I want you to pull out your pens. And I want you to lay out the courtroom with me. I want you to to think of a courtroom setting. And up in front, you have the judge. So kind of at the top box there, right in underneath where it says judge. I want you to write, who's our judge in this case? Pilate's our judge. Spineless Pilate is our judge. All right? And then... Let's see, which one do we fill in next? Go ahead and put the next one up there. Prosecution is our religious leaders. Have you minded? These are the guys who are the scholars. These are the pastors. These are the guys who are supposed to be looking for and training everybody to look for the Messiah who's coming. Except for he's not the kind of Messiah they wanted. He is not a charismatic political leader who's going to line their pockets. Instead, he calls them out for the false guys that they are, and they want to kill him. So this is who your religious leaders are. They're the ones who are prosecuting, and the defendant is... So what is his charges? Subverting the nation. What's the next charge? Okay, wait, before we go on, what's... What does subverting the nation mean? Does anybody know what that means? A rabble rouser? A traitor? Somebody who is undermining all the things that are both political and religious authorities in the time, so they're going against everybody? So that's who you have here? Subverting the nation? Is is Jesus guilty of that? No. He's not leading an uprising. All he's doing is pointing people back to who they're supposed to be as children of God. Okay, next one. Denying payment of taxes to Caesar. 
Is Jesus guilty of this? Ironically, as you look through, this is the one that we actually have him physically saying, and and we have it recorded, that when somebody says, should we pay tax to Caesar? Jesus' comment is, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God's what is God's. It's actually recorded that he was actually pro-paying taxes. I know this is really hard to believe as we are coming on April 15th, and many of us are filling out our taxes and going, man, Uncle Obama and Uncle Walker are getting a lot of my tax money. But that's, God says, hey, give it to them. So is he guilty of this? No. Pilate takes a look at these first two charges and he's like, okay, I already know these things haven't happened. I know this isn't a problem because if he were truly causing these two issues, he would have been on Pilate's radar much before this. Because Pilate's job is to make sure these two things take place in Palestine. So he'd basically, basically lay out two charges that if this were true, Pilate would have already had investigations underway and soldiers tracking him to see if he was doing these two things. Because these two things go directly against his ruling authority, which is why the Jews brought him up. They wanted trumped-up charges that Pilate should have to act on. And then the third one. What was the third one? What's that? Blasphemy? Okay, what was the direct charge? Saying he was the Christ, which according to Pilate, Pilate really doesn't care if they says he is the Christ, except because for him, blasphemy, he claims to be God. Pilate is a uh, polytheistic guy who really doesn't care. I don't care if you call yourself a God. If you are, you are. I don't care. Just don't cause problems in my area and we're good. But what charge the Pharisees make sure or the chief priests bring against him is he claims to be a king. And this does bring problems for Herod. And this does bring problems for Pilate. Because if there's one thing you can't have going on in the Roman Empire, is you can't have more than one ruler. And who's the official ruler of Palestine? Caesar. You can't claim that there is another king besides Caesar. That is their big rule. Don't break it. Rule number one in Roman territory, don't claim you're more powerful than Caesar. Caesar doesn't like it. He has an ego problem. So that's the one charge, that if you go back over to your text that you see, that that, that's the only one that Pilate listens to. That's the only one that Pilate cues in on, and Pilate goes, I have to investigate, because of all the charges, this is the one that if Caesar finds out I botch it, it's my neck that's going to be cut off not just Jesus's. So he does take some time, and Jesus answers him. So he says, are you a king? Is that your thoughts, or is that, you know, the people's thoughts? Pilate comes back, I'm not a Jew, I don't know, you tell me. And Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world. You look at this trial, you have false evidence, false accusations, and a corrupt judge who doesn't have the backbone to do what he knows is right. We're not going to talk about the verdict. That's next week's topic. But I think you know the verdict. I think you know what's going on. I think you know how this is going to end. So you have the chief priests, these religious leaders, who are bringing charges against Jesus. And they're bringing charges because they don't like him because of what he has pointed out about their own sinful lives. The situation that we're talking about here 
mimics a second courtroom. And so what I'd like you to do at this time is underneath where it says verdict, I want you to draw a set of boxes that look identical to the boxes that are already drawn for you above. Make sure you leave yourself some room. I, I know there's some white space there for you. And I want you to outline it just like you had with a judge at the top, prosecution on the left, and defendant on the right. So there's two courtrooms we're taking a look at. The one where Pilate is judge, and in that courtroom, Jesus is on trial for stuff he didn't do, and I am going to give you the, the, the insight for next week. Jesus is found guilty if you hadn't figured it out. He is condemned, even though Pilate says he's not going he's gonna to wash his hands. According to Roman law, Pilate did have to rule on it. He, his, he, he has a false trial with lots of trumped-up charges, and he's found guilty of that. We're going to come back and talk a lot about that next week, so I don't want to give you too much. So we're going to talk now about a different courtroom. And instead of Pilate, a corrupt, weak man, being the judge, we're going to put Jesus as the judge. And this is the courtroom that's going to take place for each and every one of us on Judgment Day. This is a new courtroom. And so what we're going to take a look at, go ahead and put the passage up there. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Second Corinthians. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, and has, he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. So there's going to be a day where you and I are all going to be judged, where God is going to look at us, where Jesus is going to put you on trial, and he is going to look at you as the defendant, and he's going to look at you, and he's going to say, I'm going to judge you by what you have done. The prosecution in this case, so I want you to put in the defendant box your name, which I already gave you. Because this is your trial. And your accuser, the person bringing charges against you, is going to be Satan. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God, day and night, has been hurled down. Revelation 12. We're revealed that it's Satan who brings the accusation. It's Satan who comes behind you and says, did you really do? Satan who says, you didn't keep this. Jesus is the judge. He knows, and he's going to be the one judging what you've done right and wrong. But Satan is going to be the one who sits there and goes, but he did. But let's look at this list. Then from Zechariah. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side, accusing him. So here are the accusations. So now underneath your little diagram, I want you to write charges, just like that's written above, above in your notes. And I want you to number them 1 to 10. Because here are some of the charges and accusations Satan is going to bring against you. And I'm going to put them up there, and as we read through them, if you want to copy the whole thing down, please feel free to. But I want you to really think about, and I want you to write down, innocent or guilty for yourself. You are the one he is accusing of this. All right? That's, what we're gonna, that's, that's the way this is going to go. First accusation against you. 
desires or craves after someone's, someone else's car, job, or vacation. Desires or craves after someone else's job, car, or vacation. Are you innocent or guilty of that charge? The next accusation. They get upset or are jealous because of someone else's relationship status. If only I could be the person who has that relationship. Why isn't my marriage more like so-and-so's? Why can't I find a guy like so-and-so? Why am I still single at such and such an age? Why can't I have that person's life? Why am I in this position? If you've ever had those thoughts, you need to write guilty. Next to number two. Number three. You didn't tell the whole truth to your girlfriend about a guy or vice versa. So what this is, is this is the one. Something took place and you didn't tell the whole truth to your significant other about someone else. Otherwise known as you've gossiped. You've been guilty of sharing information that you had no right sharing about someone else. So if you've ever talked about a friend who was not present in a negative way, if you've never defended a coworker who did something and you knew you wanted them in trouble and did not defend them, you need to write guilty. If you've ever checked Facebook, Twitter, personal email, or Snapchatted while on the clock at your job, write guilty because you've stolen time from your employer that they are paying you to work. If you've stopped to talk to a friend who called while you were on the clock, you're guilty. If you're a lady, you looked at the guy in the bar just a little too long and began having the thoughts about him. And guys, you let your mind wander about the girl in the tight yoga pants. You can fill in whichever other version you want, but we sometimes have children, so I had to keep it PG, maybe PG-13. So if you're guilty, write guilty next to it. You're holding a grudge against an ex or a coworker. You're getting angry at a significant other. You're starting to see this list, aren't you? And this is the list Satan is holding against you that Satan is bringing before God and says, God, this is what this person's done this week. By the way, God, this is what they deserve because guess what? This is how they've acted. You knowingly went 10 miles over on your way to work or you haven't called or spoken well of your parents in more than seven days. 
So you knowingly broke the speed limit laws. You said, yeah, I know the speed limit is 65 between here and Madison. Oh, well, that I did 90. It was with the flow of traffic. It's okay. And Satan says, that. oh, by the way, God, he likes to do that one a lot. Oh, or by the way, honor your father and mother. Oh, wait, they haven't talked to their parents in more than a month. And by the way, when somebody does ask, they have very little good to say about that person. You're starting to get it. Miss daily time with God. They haven't been in the Word at home, in a small group, or regularly even worshiping. God, why would you love and take care of this kid? Accusation against you. Have you been in the Word regularly? Use these words or others of God's names not in the proper context. They like to use your name when not talking about you, God. Why would you take care of this person? And finally, I want you to put your name in front of this one. So Kelly hasn't kept God at the forefront of his thinking and living. These are the accusations. This is just a small list. You might recognize them. We just went backwards on the Ten Commandments. Oh, by the way, God, this, this is the charges. This guy's on trial. He has died, and now he stands before you in heaven, and this is the trial that's taking place. As I look through that list, I don't know about your, your record count, but for the last week, I'm batting 0 for 10. There's been parts of my week where I've struggled with all 10 of these. And if Satan, if I died and I were on trial, these would be the accusations from this week that Satan would bring before God and say, hey God, this is what he's done. This is who, who he is before you. There's only one verdict today, God. And what's the verdict that should be found? What's the verdict? Guilty. What's the verdict that God should be finding for you in your trial? Guilty. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Under your name, where you wrote defendant, and then you put your name there, I want you to write, attorney equals Jesus. Jesus is your attorney. He is your advocate. He is the one intercessing before God on your behalf. He is the one who, at your trial, will now stand up and say, if anyone does sin, though, Father, I've died for that sin. I went on trial for that sin. They accused me of that sin, Father, and you know that I died for it. Who is it that condemns? Christ. Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So who is it that condemns? Who is it that is both our judge and our defense attorney? Jesus. And he says, here's how this trial is going to go down. Because you believe in me, because you believe that I am the Son of God, because you believe in me, and because I went through a corrupt trial and died on your behalf, here's what I'm going to say. Nope, go back. 
I've died for that one. I was raised to life for that one. Now you get to go there. You were just a click ahead of me. I now declare you not guilty. I declare you not guilty because of the trial that I endured. I was declared guilty, and we're going to talk about this verdict next week, but I went to trial on trumped-up charges, but if you look at those trumped-up charges, those are the charges of your heart. And he says, Dad, I, I, I declare this person not guilty. Go ahead and put the next one up. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now he says, I've gone through this trial, I've been raised to life, so that you now are declared righteous. So when God looks at you, when God looks at me, he says, when, I, when God is asked, what are Kelly's sins? Satan starts listing this whole litany of things that I have done wrong. All of these things that, God, God could, that Satan's accusing me of, that I am guilty of. This is what God's response is. I have forgiven him for his wickedness. And I remember his sin no more. I have no clue what Kelly did wrong. It's when God looks at me, when God looks at you, when God looks at anybody who believes in Jesus, this is what he has to say about our litany of sins that Satan's going to bring against us. He says, I, I don't have any memory of him doing those things. Because guess what? All he sees is Jesus' perfection when he looks at us. Because we get Jesus' righteous acts. So when you want to talk about the scandal, when you want to talk about an event which offends, go ahead, an event that offends our expectations. Jesus' trial offends us because he was innocent, and yet, we'll talk about it next week, he was found guilty. And as we look at our lives, and you take a look at the trial that takes place, there's a second trial. Two courtrooms of injustice. The first injustice is that Jesus was falsely accused at his trial, and that at our trial, we are falsely forgiven. Because we are guilty of all those things, and that is the true, amazing gift of God's justification. That's a $10 word of God declaring you and I not guilty because of what, Satan, or because of what Jesus has done for us. So Satan doesn't have any power. I know normally I give you this nice little list of things that how this is going to help you this week. But this week, I want you to end on this note. I want you to look at these two trials. I want you to look at your notes this week. If you need to, post, that, post it on your mirror in your bathroom at home. And I want you to ponder this entire week, these two trials side by side. And the, the miraculous gift God gives you in the fact that his son went to trial, his son was found guilty, so that your verdict is that you're innocent. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. Look forward to having you here for that journey.